Well, good morning, New Day. Thanks so much for being here today, whether you're joining us in person or online, uh, for the kickoff of a brand new teaching series. I haven't been able to say that in quite some time, but welcome and thanks for being here for the kickoff of a brand new teaching series that we're calling Christ the King, where we will be studying the gospel according to Matthew. And today, to get this series going, I'm going to give you a big, high-level overview of the series. Today, we're going to be learning about the author, who wrote the book, the aim, what the author was trying to accomplish by writing, the audience, who the author originally wrote to, the arrangement, how the book is structured, and then finally, the application how this book is relevant for our lives today. And New Day, whenever you begin studying a book of the Bible, whether it's here at church or at home for your daily quiet time, you are always going to want to begin with a high-level overview of the book, learning about the author and the aim and the audience and the arrangement, so on and so forth, because this is going to help you to make much more sense of the individual pieces of the puzzle of that book of the Bible. It's kind of like this. In my hand, here on the left, I have a puzzle in a Ziploc bag. Here on the right, I have the exact same puzzle, but it's in a box that has a completed picture of the puzzle on the front of it. And I want to ask you today, if I was to go ahead and give the uh, Ziploc baggy puzzle to one team, and then the puzzle that comes in a box that has a picture of the completed puzzle on the front to another team, and then I had those two teams compete against each other to see who could put the puzzle together the fastest, which team is going to have an easier time putting together the puzzle? And friends, the obvious answer is the team that has a picture of what the completed puzzle looks like. This high-level overview is going to help them to be able to make more sense a whole lot quicker and easier of the individual pieces of the puzzle. And this, in a nutshell, is the reason why we're kicking this series off with a high-level overview of Matthew's gospel. Today, I'm going to give you the uh, completed puzzle picture so that we can make way more sense of the individual pieces as we uh, spend weeks and months uh, studying through this book to see how each piece uh, relates to the whole. And it's going to be very helpful to you. So I'd really encourage you today to tune in and to take notes. All right, we've got a lot to cover. So speaking of taking notes, here's your first fill in the blank. We begin with the author, the author. Now, in certain books of the Bible, the author explicitly identifies himself. For example, we read in Philemon 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And in instances like that, it couldn't be uh, more obvious who the author actually is. The author tells us it's Paul. But with other books of the Bible, the author doesn't identify himself, and that's the case with the book that we're studying in this series. But don't worry, even though the author doesn't identify himself, we know with certainty that the author was a Jewish man named Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 apostles. 
Now, don't get confused because Matthew is sometimes called Levi. But here's the deal. Levi is just his Hebrew name. Matthew is his name in Greek and Levi is his name in Hebrew in the same way that Mike is my name in English and Miguel is my name in Spanish. Now, the question begs, how do we know that Matthew was the author when Matthew didn't explicitly identify himself as such? Well, we know for two reasons. First, we know because the oldest copies of Matthew's original work unanimously attest that Matthew was the author. You see, we don't have the original work of Matthew, but we do have thousands upon thousands of ancient copies of it, and they unanimously attest that this work was written by Matthew. You see, as the scribes made copies of Matthew's original work, they gave the copies this heading, To Euangelion Kata Matthion which when translated into English means the gospel according to Matthew. Now, we also know that Matthew was the author, secondly, because the church fathers unanimously attest that Matthew was the author. The church fathers were the ancient influential Christian theologians of the first 700 years or so of Christianity. And whether you're dealing with Papias from the first century... Irenaeus or Origen from the second century, or Eusebius from the third century, they all attest that Matthew wrote this gospel. And now that you know who the author is, let's spend a little bit of time getting to know him better. Matthew was born in Nazareth, but primarily lived in Capernaum. Before being called by Jesus to be one of his apostles, Matthew was a despised tax collector. Let me explain. At the time Jesus was born, the nation of Israel had been under Roman domination for some 60 years. And there were many terrible aspects of Roman domination, but one of the worst was their oppressive system of taxation, which was uh, relentless and ruthless. Two basic taxes were levied by the Romans. First was the toll tax, which was comparable to the modern-day income tax. And then there was the ground tax, which was a land or property tax. Well, Roman senators and other high-ranking officials would buy from the central government at public auction the right to tax a certain region for a period <clears throat> of five years. Whatever was collected above that amount was kept as profit. And those who held these taxing rights were called the publicani. Now, the publicani would hire others, usually citizens of the country being taxed, to do the actual collecting. And the collectors had somewhat the same arrangement with the publicani that the publicani had with Rome. Whatever they managed to collect above the amount demanded by the publicani, they were allowed to keep. So both the publicani 
And the tax collector had strong motivation to exact and to collect as much tax as possible, knowing full well that they were backed by the authority, including the military authority of the mighty Roman Empire. The tax collectors naturally were hated by their own people, not only because they were extortioners, but also because they were traitors. So in the nation of Israel in the first century, tax collectors ranked uh, with the lowest of the low. In uh, first century Israel, they were right up there with uh, sinners and prostitutes and Gentiles. But one day, Jesus sees Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth and says to him, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now, we don't know much about Matthew prior to this invitation, but it's doubtful that he was very religious because tax gatherers were ostracized, practically, if not officially, from many synagogues and sometimes even from the temple. And that, friends, is probably why Matthew so readily accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him, because it was super rare um, for a Jew to accept or be warm to or be kind to or to befriend a tax collector. And even more rare was for a rabbi to be friendly to a tax collector, a rabbi or teacher such as Jesus. Matthew was so touched by Jesus' invitation that he literally got up and left everything he had known, not just his tax collector's booth, but the life that he had grown accustomed to. He left everything to follow Jesus and to become one of his disciples. And throughout the three, three and a half uh, years of Jesus's earthly ministry, um, for some three years of that time, uh, Matthew followed Jesus and learned from him what it meant to be a disciple According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, after Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended back to heaven, Matthew continued to preach in Judea, the uh, southern portion of the nation of Israel, for some nine years. But then, much like the Apostle Paul, went on his own missionary journeys to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Whereas Paul went west, Matthew, as you can see here on the map, went east to Parthia and then south to Ethiopia. And here's the deal. Everywhere Matthew went, he started churches, he raised up preachers, and he made many converts. And now you guys better understand why uh, our vision is planting churches. We want to expand out and start new churches and raise up preachers and make many converts just like we see in the Bible. Now, until he was martyred for his faith around 60 AD, Matthew dedicated his life through his preaching and his writing to proclaiming the glorious good news about Jesus, that there's peace with God through faith in him. So that's a little bit about the author. And now that you know a little bit about the author, let's look secondly at the audience. Here, we're looking at who Matthew wrote to. It's important to understand who wrote a book of the Bible, and it's equally important when we're able to uh, uh, discover it to ascertain who that author wrote to. Now, as we just learned from Fox's Book of Martyrs, after Jesus's resurrection and ascension back to heaven, 
Matthew continued to preach in Judea for about nine years. But then, like the Apostle Paul, he wanted to go on missionary journeys of his own to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, specifically to those living in Parthia and Ethiopia, Ethiopia who had never heard the gospel. So here's what Matthew did. Before leaving to go on these missionary journeys, he wrote down what he had been preaching throughout Judea over the last nine years. And he left it with the churches so that they would have assistance and and help in discipling new converts in the church, both Jewish and Gentile. Now, Matthew's gospel definitely has a Jewish flavor to it all throughout the book. It's like, oh, in the Old Testament, it said such and such, and look how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. So it definitely has a Jewish flavor to it. So Matthew may have had Jewish converts predominantly in mind, but no doubt he wrote for the benefit of both Jews and Gentile converts because every church that existed had both groups in them. So that's like who Matthew specifically wrote to. But here is what I want you to understand today. What I want you to know and understand is that the ultimate author of this book of the Bible is not Matthew. It's not the Jewish man named Matthew. The ultimate author of this book is God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used Matthew to write to a particular group of people living during a particular period of history. So that was Matthew's specific audience. But the reality is the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit had a broader audience in mind. He had you and I in mind. And that's why God has seen to it that this book that's now some 2000 years old has been preserved for us for our benefit. All that to say, if you're taking notes, write this down. I am a part of the audience that God the Holy Spirit was writing to through Matthew. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. So ultimately, all of scripture comes from him, but is for us. So friend, isn't that awesome that this is a book that God wrote to you and to me? And over the weeks and months to come, we're going to be seeing what God wanted to communicate to us. I can't think of anything more exciting than that. All right, moving on. Now that we've looked at the audience, let's look thirdly at the aim. And here we're covering Matthew's aim in writing, why he wrote, what his purpose was, what he was hoping to convey through what he wrote. Just as some biblical authors identify themselves as the author, so some explicitly state their purpose for writing. For example, the Apostle John tells us plainly why he wrote. John says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But in the same way that Matthew didn't state his name, neither did he explicitly state his purpose for writing. But again, this is not a problem because we can deduce his purpose for writing by studying the contents of the book. And when we do, it becomes abundantly clear that Matthew wrote to testify that Jesus was the Christ, 
the Messiah, specifically God's promised king. Here's what you need to know. The focus of Old Testament prophecy is the coming of a great king who will rule over God's promised kingdom. So all throughout the Old Testament, God promised a king and a kingdom. God promised this through many different prophets, including Nathan and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah. The promise of a king and a kingdom is replete throughout the Old Testament. It's the primary focus of all Old Testament prophecy. And that being the case, the Jews looked forward longingly for the time when God's promise would be fulfilled. They were waiting with great anticipation for God's promised king to come into the world. Well, the special focus of Matthew's gospel is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, the whole New Testament acknowledges Jesus as God's promised king, which is why the Greek term basilia, which means kingdom, is used 144 times in referring to the reign of Jesus, and why the Greek term basilius, which means king, is used directly of Jesus at least 35 times. But friends, nowhere in the New Testament do we see this proclamation of Jesus being God's promised king as strongly as we do in Matthew's gospel. You see, the New Testament kicks off with four accounts of the life, uh, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They all tell the same story, uh, but each with their own emphases. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful to see. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, presents Jesus as the servant. The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as the Son of God. But the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the Sovereign. Now, the word sovereign means supreme ruler or monarch or king. And that's exactly how Matthew portrays Jesus in his gospel as the king that God promised to come into the world who would one day rule over God's eternal kingdom. And this is why in Matthew's gospel, we see the phrase the kingdom five times, the kingdom of God five times, the kingdom of heaven is like 10 times. That's how many of Jesus' parables begin. The kingdom of heaven is like, we see that phrase 10 times, and then we see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, a whopping 32 times. And we got to ask ourselves, why all this talk about a kingdom? And the answer is simple, because Matthew is revealing Jesus to be the king that God promised who would one day rule over God's eternal kingdom. So friends, that's the aim, okay? What Matthew was aiming to communicate through what he wrote. This is the aim, the purpose for which Matthew wrote to reveal Jesus as God's promised king. All right, moving on. Now that you've seen the aim, let's look fourthly at the arrangement. This is something so many people overlook uh, before beginning to study a certain book of the Bible, and it's just a rookie mistake. 
If you want to understand the various books of the Bible, always make sure that you begin by learning the arrangement, how the book is organized or structured. And what I want you to understand today is that like any other biblical author, Matthew didn't write his gospel, his account of the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus haphazardly. That is, he didn't write uh, without organization. No. He carefully and intentionally arranged his information in a way that would develop the theme of Christ the King. So what you need to understand is that Matthew is actually not written chronologically. It doesn't attempt to give a, here's what happened first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth in the life of Jesus. No, he has a theme, which is Christ the King. And that's why we've named the series Christ the King. And everything he writes in his gospel develops this theme. Let me show you. I'm going to give you an outline of the entire book. As you read through Matthew's gospel, the first thing you'll see is this, the king who was revealed, the king who was revealed. Matthew over and over and over reveals that Jesus was God's promised king. We see it all throughout the book. For example, He starts his gospel with a genealogy. Uh, Andrew, our executive pastor, is actually going to be teaching on this next week in verses uh, 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1. But he starts his gospel with a genealogy that traces Jesus' ancestry from the royal line, from the Davidic line of Israel. Matthew records that Jesus' birth was dreaded by a jealous earthly king named Herod. He shares how magi from the east bring the infant Jesus royal gifts. He shares how John the Baptist heralds the king and proclaims that his kingdom is at hand. Even the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness where Jesus uh, fasted for 40 days, uh, it all climaxes with Satan offering Jesus the kingdoms of this world. This Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and whatever, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the manifesto of the king. The miracles recorded in Matthew's gospel are Jesus' royal credentials. And many of the parables explain the mysteries of his kingdom. Jesus, towards the end of the gospel, makes a royal entry into Jerusalem and while facing the cross, predicts his future reign. And Jesus' last words on earth were that all authority had been given to him in both heaven and earth. All that to say, the first thing we see in Matthew's gospel is the king who was revealed. All right, here's the second thing we see as we read through this gospel. Secondly, we see the king who was rejected. Matthew places a major emphasis on how Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews. For example, soon after Jesus was born, Herod threatened his life, and his parents had to flee with him to Egypt. So Herod didn't accept him as king. No, he tried to kill him. Likewise, John the Baptist was the herald of the king, okay? He was the official messenger who brought the good news to Israel that their king had arrived. And Matthew makes it a point to record how John, the herald of the king, was arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded. 
This, of course, is a picture of rejection, if there ever was one. Now, was King Jesus given a castle throughout his life? No, during his earthly ministry, Jesus had no place to lay his head, no place to call home. And after Jesus was scourged and delivered to the Romans to be crucified, what did the soldiers do? Did they acknowledge him as king and bow down and worship him? No. We read in the Bible that they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, which was the clothing of a king. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So the typical king of those times would be clothed in scarlet and would have a crown and would have a scepter, which is just an ornamented staff carried by rulers, uh, which was a symbol of their sovereignty. So the Roman soldiers put Jesus in scarlet, they made a crown of thorns, and they gave him a reed as a substitute scepter. But Matthew records that they not only mocked Jesus in this way, but then they ripped the scepter out of his hand and beat him with it before crucifying him on the cross. So what I'm trying to show you is rejection, rejection, rejection. All throughout the gospel, Jesus is the king who is revealed, but he's also the king who was rejected. As the apostle John put it in his gospel, he, meaning Jesus, came to his own, meaning the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews rejected their king. Okay, third and final thing we see in Matthew's gospel, and I want you to remember here, I'm giving you the arrangement. I'm showing you how the book's organized. First, it reveals the king uh, who was revealed, and then secondly, the king who was rejected. And now thirdly, if you're still taking notes, we see the king who will return. Yes, Jesus was rejected, but Matthew makes clear that this was not the end of Jesus's story. In Matthew's gospel, he looks ahead to the time of Jesus' second coming. There in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. To the time of his return, Matthew writes. The time where all the earth, Matthew says, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is, with all the pomp and circumstance appropriate for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Matthew tells us this in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So here's the deal. Right before uh, Jesus' second coming, God the Father will crown Jesus as king. And after being crowned, Jesus will return to earth to overthrow Satan take back the dominion that was lost through sin and establish a lasting kingdom on earth that will extend into eternity after a thousand years on earth. So Matthew doesn't stop at the king rejected. He moves on to that future day when Jesus will receive a crown, a throne, and a kingdom. So I hope you see it, friends. Like any other biblical author, Matthew didn't write haphazardly, without organization. No, he carefully arranged his material in a way that developed his theme, which was Christ the King. And everything he writes supports 
that theme, as we've just seen. Okay, now that you know the arrangement, let's cover, lastly, the application. The application. Here, we're looking at what we should do with what we just learned, okay? I'm sharing all this information today with you, uh, not so that you can become a smarter sinner, rather so that you can become more like the Savior. So let's focus now on the application. I'm going to give you three things very briefly. If you're taking notes, the first thing that everything we've just learned implores us to do is this. Invite someone to follow Jesus. Jesus extended a simple invitation to Matthew that changed his life and his eternity. And God wants to use you and I to have that same effect on others. And friends, it happens through simple invitations. Too often we make the mistake of thinking that we have to be a theologian or an expert in Christian apologetics in order to make a difference in someone's life and in order to impact where they spend all eternity. But the reality is that God doesn't have to have you be those things. The reality is that God can use any single one of us to extend an invite that changes someone's life and eternity. Matthew was hated by the vast majority of his countrymen, so I think it's pretty safe to assume that he was a very broken individual. And I think it was because he was broken on the inside that he so readily left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew was just waiting for someone to give him that invite. And in the same way, I want to make you aware that there's so many broken and hurting people all around us. And they, like Matthew, are just waiting for the invite that will change their lives in eternity forever. Real quick, I want you to take a look at one of our invite cards that we put out by our uh, main exits. Our invite says, we'd love to have you this Sunday. Friends, that's... That's a simple invite. And as you rub shoulders with the various people in your life, I want you to be on the lookout for the broken and the hurting. Just recently, I was out and about, and I just saw brokenness all over someone's face. And I went up to him and I said, hey, I want to give you this invite card. Love to have you at our church. Just such a simple thing. And you know, I don't know what's going to come of that or if anything will come of that, but I'm trusting that God will use it to change someone's life. And I know that God wants to use you that same way this week. We've provided you with some uh, invite cards today, and uh, we'd love for you to go ahead and step out in faith and invite someone to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus did with Matthew, and that's what we are to do with others. All right, number two. Second application is this. I want you to prioritize joining us on this journey through Matthew's gospel. Jesus said, follow me and be my disciple to Matthew. So the invitation to follow Jesus was an invitation to come to him to learn what it actually means to be a disciple. And for some three years, Matthew learned directly from Jesus what's involved in biblical discipleship. And in this book that Matthew wrote, he shares with us what he learned directly from Jesus. 
Matthew covers more instruction on discipleship than any other gospel. And it includes many teachings of Jesus that none of the other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, teach on. So there's no better book to study to learn what it means to follow Jesus and to be his disciple than Matthew's gospel. So again, whether you attend in person or online, I want to challenge you to prioritize joining us on this journey as we study through this book. The reality is a lot of American Christians have invented their own version of discipleship. In other words, they think they're disciples of Jesus. They would call themselves a follower of Jesus, but their understanding is not deeply rooted in Scripture. And so they've deceived themselves. Disciple means learner. And a disciple of Jesus is a learner of the words and ways of Jesus. And in this series, we're going to bring you face to face with the words of Christ. And we're going to learn what it truly means to follow him. And so I'd really encourage you to prioritize joining us through Matthew's gospel, which is what we're going to do over the course of this year. However often you attend, I want to challenge you, attend one more time per month. Just one more time than you already do. That's my challenge. All right, here's our final application, number three. Don't repeat history. Don't repeat history. The worst mistake ever made in the history of the world was the wholesale rejection of Christ, the King. Though Jesus perfectly matched the identity of God's promised King, many in Israel rejected him. Not for insufficient evidence that he really was the promised king, rather because many people just don't want someone else ruling over their life or being the authority over their life, even if that someone else is their maker. But friends, I would plead with you today not to make the mistake that many in Israel made in the first century. I would implore you today to ask Jesus to be your savior. And I would implore you today to appoint Jesus as Lord or King over your life. Because the Bible tells us plainly that it's only those who appoint Jesus as King over their life and live lives submitted to his rule who will live forever in his future kingdom. And for those who would like to appoint Jesus their King today, it would be my great privilege to lead you in prayer as our time together now comes to a close. I want to ask wherever you are today, here in person or online, would you bow your head and would you close your eyes? And not out loud, but in your heart, would you say a prayer along these lines to God? Say, Heavenly Father, I accept Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the king that you promised through your prophets. I want Jesus to be my savior and Lord for he and he alone is the one that you've appointed to rule for all eternity. God, I want to be a citizen in your kingdom that you've appointed Christ to rule over forever. So forgive me of my sins and help me through this series to learn what it truly means to be a disciple and follower of King Jesus. 
It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 413-200-3040. We'd love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and don't forget about our awesome free app where you can find all things New Day. May God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.